Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. Today, I am sitting with the head instructor and owner of St. Cloud, Minnesota, Subak Do, Bill Nelson. How are you doing today, Bill? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You know, for now, anyone who listened to the, the first episode of the show um, knows that Bill was actually my first instructor. And we'll, we'll get to that story in a little bit. But first, we want to little, know more about Bill and kind of how he got started. Now, when, when was your first experience with martial arts? And maybe not necessarily when you started it, but when did you first know about it or see it? So I think it was 72 or 73. I went to the movie Billy Jack and I was sold. And uh, it just, uh, came out of nowhere. I it it seemed real, and it uh, you know Billy Jack. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, he just kind of came to be this guy that everybody respected, and he was calm and he was peaceful and he was nice and kind, but he didn't want to mess with them. And and the townspeople were really giving the native people some trouble, and he was trying to help these kids. And uh, so I seeked out then. I think I took a a taekwondo class, a six week taekwondo class in the basement of a church. And then somewhere around 74, I think, 75, I got hooked up uh, in St. Paul. I was actually running a pool hall at age 16, which is wow. kind of strange. Um, but uh, a taekwondo school moved in next door, and my instructor there was uh, Master Lim. He was a fifth-degree black belt in judo and karate. And uh, I went over. I said, how much is it for a year? And gave him the money for a year. I was his first student. Turned out. Um, he was a, he was a world-class judo player. I don't know where he got to fifth on in Taekwondo, but, um, eventually he worked his way out of it. And my current instructor, who's, uh, Lawrence Cyberlick came in and he was teaching Tung Sudo at the time. And so that kind of started it. It's a, it's a strange thing though, because working at the pool hall, I was fighting a lot. A lot of the things I was doing in my life were for the wrong reason. I was fighting I was uh, gambling a lot, and uh, it, it kind of came to be pretty soon in the school that, you know, you're either going to play by these rules or these rules. And uh, obviously the martial arts was about conducting yourself in a way that was good, and the pool hall was all about show. And and so luckily that won <laughs> over, and I, I started Subakdo or Tungsudo at that time, I think in 1974, 75, so... I've been doing it, you can do the math, you know, about 45 years. And then what was it specifically about Subak Do that you enjoyed? That What made you stick with that style, Tung Sudo at the time? Well, a little <laughs> bit of it, you know, was geography. It was right next to where I was working. Right. Um, but luckily, both Taekwondo and Subak Do are Korean martial artists, so or martial arts. So I, I liked the jumping and the spinning and the kicking, which little did I know, 
is is probably one of the least effective things in defending yourself, but it sure seemed fun to do. I wasn't the most athletic guy. I didn't do any athletics in high school, but I did I did do martial arts and so it gave me that outlet and and you know, tournament sparring and, and fighting and competing and that kind of stuff. It just was more exciting because jumping and spinning and doing all kinds of stuff. So what belt, what belt level when you got involved in tournaments? What like do you remember your first first tournament you competed in? Uh, orange belt was it okay? Yeah. And how'd you do in that tournament? Yeah. Do you remember? You still got the trophy up here. 1977. Nice. You know, people can't see, but we're in my office and and I've got an array of awards from different times. And for a while, I thought, you know, this is a good thing for my students to see that I've been around a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm not just a certificate kind of an instructor, right? Well, one kid looked the other day and he goes, 77, you're older than my grandpa. (laughs) Ouch. After a while, the marketing tool, uh, you know, turned it around. But yeah, I think 70, 70, mid 70s, I was competing, you know, as an orange belt. Okay. And you ended up, that that became a pretty big part of your life for a while. You did quite a bit of tournament competition. I really enjoyed the competition and I enjoyed, you know, I don't have any kids, but, you know, people see success in their kids and, when I was winning in tournaments and then I started seeing my students, you know, it's kind of a reinforcement that if in this community at this particular day, if they do good in their former fighting, it says something about what I'm doing at least. Right. You know, it's not like they're in last place and I need to go back and figure out why what I'm teaching isn't working. So I always got a kick out of that, you know, probably more so my students winning than me winning. Right. And then at what point did you decide teaching was in your future? Did you start, I'm assuming you started assisting before you got your black belt? And Yeah, actually, um, so when I when I started, like we talked about, that was down in Larpener and Snelling in St. Paul, actually, mm-hmm. Roseville area. And my instructor moved the school to Hamlin and Randolph. I was a green belt. And he just said, what night are you going to teach? And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and so as a teenage green belt, I was basically... Uh, taking people in, signing them up, doing the private intros. And I obviously had some assistance, but we were pretty small and there wasn't enough to go around. And so I got exposed to it pretty early and my instructor kind of kept a thumb on to make sure. And I knew right away that when I moved to St. Cloud to go to college, I knew that I was going to, it was going to supplement something, you know, for sure it was going right. to fill a need that I had that I wanted to continue martial arts, but also... Um, you know, I thought there was a business opportunity there. So did you start teaching right away when you moved here or how long, how long of a wait or another strange story. So I tested for my first degree black belt in August of 79, I believe. And a week later I got on a plane to go to Europe for a year. Oh, wow. Study through St. Cloud state. Okay. And so I was with a hundred Americans living in a youth hostel and I started a class over there. Wow. So I had about 20 people in my class for about a year and, Came back here, and some of them stayed with it. I got hooked up as a club on St. Cloud State University campus. I had 90 people at one time just in the club, and then I had a street school that had another, you know, 60 or something. So, so it was kind of a heyday, you know. It was it was a time where it was a popular thing, and there wasn't as many schools in St. Cloud, and and so I I never really got a chance to scratch my head and say is this what I want to do? Cause it just kept building. Right. And you feel a little bit of responsibility to people. Once they start, you're not going to just say, Oh, I'm going to go to Texas. I'll see you later. You know? So, uh, I just kept with it. So talk a little bit about this. I read about the, the international fighting competition you competed in. 
in Atlantic City, New Jersey in 1982. How did that come about? So at that time, Tungsudo, every every few years, they would put together an international competition and try to get as many countries as they could. And uh, so the U.S. had actually three teams, and they, they had tryouts for them. And I tried out, and I made I made one of the teams. And uh, it was pretty all new, new to me. You know, mm-hmm. I had been going to nationals, you know, maybe for just a couple of years. But my experience was... In, in Tungsudo at the time, there was nine regions. And so a year before that, I won our regional black belt competition. And so I thought I was going to go to New Jersey for nationals, and it'd be me and eight other guys mm-hmm. for this division that I won. Well, I got there, there was 131 people in my division. Wow. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> so uh, it was a little bit strange, but fast forward, I think it was the next year, we had fighting tryouts for that international team, and I made the team. And it was a great experience. There was I met people from all over the world. And in fact, there was a team from Denmark. And because I had just gotten back from Denmark and they thought that I could speak Danish, they had me host the Danish team. So I got to be a host and I got to fight. And uh, it, was a, it was a crazy, crazy experience because there's so many, you know, for people that have been exposed, uh, the contact levels are so different. You know, Tungsudo at the time was pretty much considered a non-contact competitive mm-hmm. art and i hate to say this because it's negative but atlantic city ran out of ambulances we called and they said really? we have all our ambulances you know we <laughs> and so there was really a lot of contact okay and i remember you know the european teams italy um germany uh there was just some huge contact going on and i remember fighting in the individual international part fighting one of the guys I was hosting from Denmark. And I, I really, I really thought I can't, I, I got to get out of this alive <laughs> because there's no block in this guy. You're just getting out of the way of him or, right. you know, and it was crazy, but my team didn't do so well. Uh, I won my fight uh, against a guy from Malaysia, but I didn't, uh, we didn't go forward. So, but it was a great experience. So as far as like the contact, what, what do you prefer? Did you prefer the Kung Tzu style of no contact or did you prefer the hard contact stuff? <laughs> Well, personally, I like contact. If you can hit me, hit me. Otherwise, I'm not going to learn from it. If I'm always thinking I'm just out of the way, and you're always thinking, well, I could have got him. So um, personally, I like uh, light contact to the head, medium to the body, just so we know what's happening. Mm -hmm. But if you've ever run a competitive event like that, it's very difficult to get everybody on the same page. Right. And there's so much ego and there's so much competitive spirit that they want to win at whatever cost, and I think it just got a little bit out of hand. But typically, I don't mind a little bit of contact. One of the problems with that is is if all the students watch the black belts have contact, then they think it's okay. And I really think for the lower ranks, you need to you need to learn the discipline of distance and timing and not have contact. And people say, well, that isn't real. But I think if you can stop it an inch away, you can probably let it go through. Yeah, and good control. I just it shows control. That, yeah. <laughs> At some point, the black belt level sparring needs to be a little bit. It doesn't show out of control. It just shows uh, a controlled technique with some context. Then uh, when did the, now the Little Falls School, I believe it was, was it you and Tim that opened that together? Or um, w- when did that come apart? That's when I first met you was through the Little Falls School. Yeah, you know, I have a fog in there, but it was it was the early 80s and uh Tim came along a little bit later. It wasn't much, but I remember going up to Little Falls and 
can't think of his last name, Cy. He owned the Drawbridge Bar. Oh, okay. So I was going around looking for a basement of a church or somewhere to teach, and the owner of the Drawbridge Bar let me teach in the basement of the Drawbridge. And really? And this place was prehistoric. I mean, okay. it was poured stone, field stone walls, and he let me do it for nothing. And he said, but at 8 o'clock the band starts, so... <laughs> We would end class when the music started because it was hard to hear. Yeah. You know, we'd start at five or six and go till eight, and there was a pool tournament at the same time, and I love playing pool. So it worked out, and we moved from the drawbridge. The drawbridge burned, and then the police department let us go up above the police department in the old courthouse facility. Yeah. And so we were there for a long time, too. And Tim got involved pretty early, and then Tim kind of took over the school. But I tried to make it as much as I can, but at that time... You know, I had these satellite schools in Princeton, mm-hmm. Kimball, and, you know, you get spread out, and it's like, now I'm not at my my St. Cloud school that much. So well, I got to ask you about the uh, one of the marketing techniques used in Little Falls, because it's the whole reason I actually joined was uh, June of 1984. Me and my uh, young friends, I think I was in fourth grade at the time, went to attend a showing of the Karate Kid opening weekend, and then when we were walking out of the movie theater, you and Tim were standing there handing out these little yellow cards for a free month of karate lessons. Yeah. And that, that was, you know, that was my first experience with in real life. I had watched it on TV and stuff like that, but that was my first real experience actually coming and, and joining a class. So how did that idea come about? Actually, it's because now, know, you, now you see it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at the time there was a lot of people that would have business cards and they'd say, come in for a free inter- introductory class. And, Back then and to this day, I'm just all about numbers. I think the class has more energy. I don't need 50 people in a class, but I like to have 15 or more. Mm -hmm. And so instead of giving away a free class, I thought if I can get them in there for a free month, I will sell them on this being a good physical activity. I'll sell the parents on it being a good discipline thing for respect for their kids. And so I was always big on, I got to be there anyway, as long as I've got enough room. So we put the thing out for a free month. Well, we didn't know 137 people were going to show up the first (laughs) night. And we really, really backpedaled because then we had to offer different nights. We had to break them up and tell them to come at certain times. And we had to know which time worked for them. And, you know, even today in the martial arts world, I feel like you have a two-hour window to teach kids. Mm -hmm. If you do it before five, the parents can't get them there. And if you do it after seven, it gets too late, especially if they're little. Yep. And so it's it's also a time when adults want to come. So it's really it's really refined into a smaller time frame. But uh, yeah, and and to this day, I still do a free month. Nice. And um, like you said, a lot of people have followed suit, and they'll they'll do the free month just because. And and I even upped it one time to do it for three months. Oh wow! You know, things kind of got slow, and people I just really needed them to come in, and and I've even considered. This, which is really weird, but like a full-page ad in the paper, free year of karate to the first 30 people that sign up. But the stipulation would be, if you stay for the whole year, it's free. And if you quit after three months, then you have to pay me for the three. Or if you quit after nine months. So it would give them the incentive to keep going, but I never did that. I've seen that happen. I've seen that similar. My, up in up in Fargo, we had someone do, actually my, my instructor did a women's self-defense class, and he advertised it as a free women's self-defense class. He charged them, I forgot what it was, 30 bucks. And as long as they didn't miss the six weeks, they got their money back. Nice. So they yeah. all made it every class, which it worked. Yeah, it did. And, you, you know, you never know what um, motivates people. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's money, and hopefully it was that they liked that class. Right. But 
nice of him to give it back and to let people know I'm more about um, the community and safety than I am about throwing money in the bank. Exactly. So it's kind of nice. Yeah, because I've seen some overpriced women's self-defense classes too also, yeah. and it's like, I, I can see charging for it because it's your time, but I've seen people charge, you know, 150 bucks for a weekend self-defense class. I'm like, that's kind of yeah. crazy. Not for, you know. And I've, <laughs> you know, I've done, I've done a lot of that all yeah. over the country three or four times and I've tried everything and uh, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough one. So jumping ahead a little bit to 19, it was at 1990, you got to be a, a coach for the Goodwill Games. Talk a little, little bit about that. Yeah, that was, um, you know, after you've been around a while, and I competed, I did well, I had teams that did well. You get a little notoriety, and our organization was putting together a goodwill uh, team in, for Switzerland. And they had picked me and a friend of mine, Charlie Ferraro, who has a big organization up in Connecticut now and, and all over the world. But he and I got to be the coaches for that team, and it was really a great experience. They took, they took one youth or one child from each of the nine regions, and they okay. flew us all to New Jersey, and we got to train with them for two or three days. We put together some demonstrations. We had dinner with the Grandmaster, wow. our annual Kodanja testing, which is master, fourth degree, and higher. It's a 10-day test. was happening at the same time. So we got to mix with them. We got to have dinner with them. And then we toured New York City, got to do the Empire State Building and, you know, the Statue of Liberty and all with these kids. And then we flew over to Switzerland. And kind of threw them a curveball. We got there, and, and it wasn't going to be the U.S. against Switzerland. We, we made teams that mixed with different kids from Europe with oh, kids from the U.S. Okay. And each of the kids got to go and stay with the family from Switzerland. And we had a competition where, you know, these guys didn't all speak the same language, and they had to figure it out and, and do a little demo. And uh, Master Ferraro and I did a little demo, and it was just a great experience. Yeah, so that sounds like a good time. Yeah, really cool. Really cool. You know, I look back at stuff like that, and at the time, I was just so pumped up that they asked me to do it, and I I thought of what I'm gonna give to these kids, and then you look and turn around back, and it, it was what I got. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes you think you're helping them, but really they help you, and so it was it was a pretty awesome experience. So now backing up a little bit, to, we were talking about women's self-defense a little bit. When did your book come about? Uh, what kind of brought that idea on? I think it was 93 you published it. But, uh, 91 or 93. It was kind of strange, just like any other karate guy. I got asked occasionally to, to come and do something. And I would talk about groin kicks and breaking boards. And, you know, uh, it dawned on me after a while that there was a little bit more to that issue. And so I got involved with the Central Minnesota Sexual Assault Center and through the training there, I got to go out to the prison and meet with child molesters and sex offenders. And I really started to understand the issue of sexual assault and the victimization and sexism and gender stereotypes and how, how men and women are brought up differently. And, and so uh, I decided to write that book. My book is called Your Weapon Within. And it's really all about trusting your instincts. And in a last resort situation, maybe it's good to know some physical stuff. But prior to that, to understand a little bit about how, how victims are picked and, and more about the issue of it. And then being intuitive and use your sensory system to be aware of your surroundings as kind of a, let's do this first. If you want to do some kind of physical combat, boxing, karate, you know, wrestling, that's, that's added. But So I wrote the book and before I knew it, 
I was getting paid a lot of money to go speak about it around the country. And I mean, I toured for five years, wow. a couple times a month, every state, you know, and it was a great experience. And, you know, I sold a lot of books and I, I made a lot of money doing that. And I hope that I had an influence, but it really didn't turn out to be much of a martial arts thing. Right. And so... Uh, a couple of times I toured with Subak Do schools in mind. So I would go to Florida, go to three or four different schools. I would do my thing and then they would set up a physical class after that. Okay. I may do a physical class, but they would set something up to promote their school. And so it was good in that way. But, you know, what I really came to learn is if, if it takes me five years to get a good sidekick, I can't teach someone a sidekick in two hours. Right. And if, if anything, it's entertaining and it's... Um, and it's fun. You know, I still do these classes, three hours, hour and a half lecture, hour and a half hitting stuff. And they like to hit stuff. It's empowering. But I tell them if you don't use it, you lose it. And so let's not create a false sense of security. So I really think that if people want to be serious about physically defending themselves, they have to commit to some lifetime of training, you know. Agreed. Like anybody else. And so that's kind of the problem that I have with most of the self-defense classes. Like, I know that I was targeted because of my time with women at the Women's Center at St. Cloud State, the Sexual Assault Center here, and Anna Marie's, which is a shelter for battered women. I started volunteering there in 79 when they opened and still help out. And so I know going around the country, almost everywhere I went, there was a group of women there to knock me down because who are you as a guy to come around and talk about this? And usually at the end, they shook my hand because... My approach was completely different. You know, if, if you're going to tell women not to wear short skirts or not to go out after dark, now granted, there might be some safety issues with that, but, right. you know, it's, it's the whole take back the night. Women need to be able to dress how they want, go out where they want, and not, if something happens, not be victimized again and blamed as a victim because of something they did or said or wore or that kind of thing. So uh, it was a real learning experience for me. Just because here I am, a guy who was taught by six or eight women around here, they taught me they knew more than I did, and I'm the one going around the country getting 3000 bucks a crack doing this lecture. And so it was sexism at its best. And a little bit that, you know, my background's in law enforcement and private investigation. And so there's, there's some uh, credibility that goes with what I was talking about. But I really think sometimes these women would have gone and done a better job than me. They knew more about it than me, but I was the one that was doing it. And you got to do it. You <laughs> exactly. I mean, a lot of people could do things, but they don't do things. And so I did it and, and it was a great chapter, but I don't do, I don't do the travel much anymore. I do some local stuff. But So would you like to see, uh, I had this conversation with others in the past, w would you like to see martial arts more integrated into everyday life in general? Like, would you, would you think something like that could be beneficial if it actually, you know, were to happen nationwide? You know, I obviously have to have the right instructors. Yeah, <laughs> I, that's the problem. I definitely think that it's a good thing, but it's, you know, like the Karate Kid movie, uh, the Cobra Kai guy, <laughs> he was uh, presented as the bad guy. And, you know, so if you have that, it's, it's no good. But, you know, if we really delved into sec sexual assault and, and for a long time, statistics were showing that if you fight back, you actually turn up the heat. So fighting back really wasn't the best option. Now, statistically, they're saying that when you fight back, you have an increased chance of being injured, but 
you increase the chance of getting out of the sexual assault. So that's good. It's yeah. moving in the right direction. But there's a lot of martial arts out there that I don't know how good they're going to be in a situation. So from the standpoint of going into the school systems, or like I tried to integrate into the Girl Scouts and stuff, for discipline, respect, for empowerment, for self-confidence, all those things that I think help you be less of a victim are good. Whether people are going to come out national champion fighters, and even if they are, a national tournament fighter might get dropped in three seconds by a good street fighter anyway. Exactly. So uh, we have to kind of look at what is your purpose and, and what do you want to get out of it. You know, some people come to me and say, well, this isn't Taekwondo. I want my kid to go to the Olympics. And I'm like, well, I want my kid to be a professional baseball player, but it's a slim chance. <laughs> I don't have any kids. But you know what I'm saying. Right. It's, uh, it's a weird thing to come to me. Like, if they came to me and they were doing really good and I thought they had potential to go to the Olympics, I might say, okay, well, here's a good Taekwondo school. But let's get through the preliminary stuff first. And Back to answer your question, I definitely think martial arts training is great for all ages. Mm -hmm. And so if it could be integrated into something, you know, now we're seeing schools going back to trap shooting. And, you know, if you can bring a gun to school, we should be able to find some good martial arts instructors to have some after school good point. Yeah. classes that, you know, I mean, the offense is going to say, well, you're going to teach these kids to be violent. And I think, I think that's why this podcast will be good because it'll teach people that martial arts isn't about that. Right. A few, a few kind of fun questions to, to wrap the show up a little bit. Now, in, in all your years of martial arts training, is there one or two or one specific philosophy that you learned in martial arts that you is the most important to you or one that you really press upon your students or something that really stands out? Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind. You know, the Grandmaster in Subakdo, I think the underlying philosophy would be to be well and to have a good life and to prolong your life through health. Well, that's kind of sappy to say. I mean, everybody <laughs> wants to do that and everybody's taking yoga and, you know, but to really live that philosophy, you need to have an attitude of being positive and being healthy and trying to eliminate the negatives in your life, which there's a lot of things out there that will come in. Another one that came to me when I was testing for my fourth degree black belt, um, my instructor's old school. And when uh, my best friend and I went to test for our fourth degree, it was a 10-day test, not much sleep, not much food. We knew what we were going into, but a lot of times you know what you're going into. Mm -hmm. And at about the third day, even though you thought, I'm, I'm not going to let them get to me, they start getting to you. And I remember he told us that we needed to present a demonstration at the end of it. Part of it was fighting from the sitting position, and part of it was whatever we wanted. And so I remember one of the first days we got in there and there was about 15 or 20 of us testing for fourth up to sixth, I think. And we were going to get to know each other pretty well. But the grandmaster now was the son of the grandmaster at the time. He wasn't the grandmaster. He was a little mad that we didn't know everybody's name. And he kind of went into this little lecture about you need to learn to take care of each other. Even your attacker, you need to learn to take care of each other because you're going to be better suited to take care of them. And he didn't mean like take care of them. Right. He meant. And so interesting enough, I did my knife demo at the end and my knife demo was a lot of 
redirecting the knife back into my attacker and cutting his throat. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I had a lot of prominent people tell me at the end of that that was the best demo they ever saw, but it might not have been the best place to do it, especially <laughs> after he said you got to take care of each other. Right. And it really dawned on me that, you know, I have an occupation where I'm going to get into more fights than most people. But, you know, just walking down the street and you see somebody that needs something to eat, you know, you need to take care of them. And it really amazes me that when we're young, our parents take care of us and it's just natural that we take care of them. And some people don't get that. And, and you know, those are just a couple of little examples. How can you not want to take care of children and elderly? And how can you? And so that philosophy of taking care is, is kind of, one of the big things for me, you know, not just taking care of your own, but right. sometimes you got to take care of some other people or the animals. Do you have a favorite martial arts book, either one that you enjoy reading a lot yourself or one that you, you know, recommend to others? You know, I would have to say there's a book called Zen in the Martial Arts, and it's a <laughs> it's a basic book, but it's it's uh, it's one of those early on that just kind of caught my eye, mm-hmm. you know. Who's going to win the race, the rabbit or the fox? Well, the rabbit's running for his life and the fox is running for his dinner. And so the rabbit's going to... And it was just little things like that that, you know, I was pretty young and they affected me. And I'll go back and read that book. But there's a lot of martial arts books that I like. And, and, you know, the Grandmaster now in Subakto has done a philosophy book and a history book. And so there's a lot of good stuff there. Thank you. I think you're my third guest that has said Zen and martial arts, though. It's a very, really? good, very good book. So, yeah. and then do you have a final question? A, a, a favorite martial arts TV show and or movie? Um, you know, obviously, I know you mentioned Billy Jack. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm definitely going to say Billy Jack is up there. And then I kind of got into the the Kung Fu series, kind of because you know this is this is something you probably don't want me to say, but <laughs> there was a day when I just couldn't. I just if you said what do you, who are you or what do you do? I couldn't tell you quick enough that I was a martial arts instructor. Mm-hmm. And today I almost don't want to say it. Everybody's got a black belt and I'm maybe I'm old and maybe I'm old school, but people want 45 minute classes once a week. They want to get their black belt in a year. <laughs> and it's running me out of business because other schools in the area will do it. And I won't. And people want to know why their kids been going for four years and they still don't have a black belt because they're not a black belt yet. And I always say, you know, you can have one or you can buy one can be one or you can have one yep. if you want one i got one for six bucks if you want to be one it's going to take a little bit more time so that kung fu show you know really had a lot of philosophy wound into it you know in the end there was always some violence yeah and it was always somebody getting bullied and this guy coming along which is weird because then he's bullying you know he's got the ability but the only other one that i would mention and this is kind of embarrassing but steven seagal's first movie hard to kill hard to kill was it hard to kill? No, that wasn't his first no, one. It was um, above, above the law. Above the law. Yeah. You know, uh, it just had a lot of real stuff. I don't know the history on Steven Seagal, but I heard that he was for real. I heard a lot of other Hollywood stuff that he's got a big ego and he does this and he does that. But uh, uh, he, he really brought out Aikido and, you know, using someone else's force against him. And, and there was just a lot of cool fight scenes in that movie. So I like that movie. I think late late eighties, early nineties was just a boom for martial arts. I mean, you had Steven Seagal, you had Jeff Speakman, you had Jean Claude Van Damme, you had Chuck Norris. So, so yeah. many, so many movies to pick yeah. from. But yeah, I, I'm a big big fan of Above the Law too. That's a good one. So. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you for taking the time to to sit down with us and, yeah, and let well, let everyone you. get to know you. And 
if you want, I'll put a, put a link for your school. And if you still have, if the book's still for sale, I can put a link for the book. Yeah, yeah I'm not the, currently. I'm okay. I might have a handful of books, <laughs> okay. but uh, and I may redo it again and go do it again. But you know, okay, that's cool. Like I said, I'll, I'll, anything, any links you want me to advertise for you, yeah. I will put it in the show notes of the podcast. And I once again truly appreciate it. And oh, uh, I, I, I appreciate it too. It's been kind of a long time coming. <laughs> yes, and I'm glad that. Not only you're getting it together, but that we uh, got the time to do it. Definitely. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, sir. All right. You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.